0: Welcome back to Left of Normal, where everything that isn't right is left, and everything that is left is right. I'm your host, Scott Seary. If you're new to this podcast, I welcome you to the show. Uh, After you finish up this particular episode, please scroll back to episodes 1 and 2, where I lay out what Left of Normal is all about, and how understanding each other is the only way that we can build a better world. For the regulars here, I appreciate your support. As a left of normal, the hardest part for me uh, on running this podcast is expanding the reach. It would mean the world to me if you'd just help me out with a simple five star review on whatever platform you happen to be you happen to be listening in on, and then share this with your friends that you think will get value from the information. Here in. So last week we looked at some of the terminology behind ASD, Asperger's, and the overall situation of how these terms themselves are setting people up to be marginalized rather than supported. This week I want to focus on some of the things the left of normal children experience and how you can help support them when sometimes. They can be incredibly frustrating. So I'll go through a little bit of my experience and some of what I see in my own son. And if you start to recognize some of these traits in your own children, I can hopefully give you some insight into what they're thinking and processing so life can hopefully go a little bit more smoothly. So to to kick it off, uh, let's start with some special interests. Those on the spectrum are known to hyperfixate on things. Sometimes it's to the point where they really can't focus on anything else. Instead, all of their energy goes into this one focus, this one interest, one concept, but at one at a time. These hyperfixations do change over time, and generally speaking, it's like all in on one thing, For a period of time and then it's all in on another thing and another thing and so on and so forth so one of the ways to diverge from that special interest is to make the special interest apply to more than just one area so how does this look all right for me growing up and now even as an adult some of that interest is on data and maps Let's break that down a bit because they seem a little incongruent with each other. And it's true. They don't always have much to do with one another. So let's start with maps. My son absolutely loves loves maps. He loves the states. He memorizes them. He spouts off the state capitals. And he can even name the state capitals in alphabetical order, or the states in alphabetical order, by their capitals. So alphabetically the states go alabama alaska arizona arkansas and so on but he'll list them off as montgomery juno phoenix little rock etc so it's the states are alphabetized but the he's stating them by capital i don't know how he does this but it's rather impressive and what it comes from is Many, many hours of looking at maps and just studying them. And I remember road trips as a child where I would sit and I would look at an atlas or a map for just hours on end while we drove along and I'd memorize the distance between the towns and the cities we'd pass through so I'd know what was coming up and I'd understand, okay, now we're in this city and we have 12 miles to get to the next one and then 14 miles after that and on and on. Today, while we travel, my son often likes to look at Google Maps on my phone, and then he can watch kind of where we are, where we're going, and then obviously gets a little tired of that. So he scrolls around and looks at various other places around the world. And this is actually a trend I've noticed in a lot of Left of Normal people, and children in particular, they are fascinated with maps. So if you find your child fascinated with maps or atlases or you know whatever invest in them buy them a globe encourage them to understand geography and have them just dive into this because it's really not going to go away if they're pretty into this now they will be into it as an adult as well so let's move over to this data aspect statistics and data have always been a fascination of mine Uh, The easiest way to break it down is probably just the demographics of a state or an area. Learning how many people live in the place, their ages, their ethnicity, and all of that demographic data. I mean, I would look it up, especially as a child. You flip to the back of the atlas and it tells you how many people live in each city. I never really did anything with that information, but it was always fun to know. And it was fun to look it up and just to compare populations and All these different statistics so later on in college i did take statistics classes Uh, primarily i enjoyed it because it's a lot of math and math, math is very logical and very predictable it was a fun class to see how this math this kind of abstract number thing could apply to real life Granted, I didn't pursue much of it because by the time I took a statistics course, I was pretty heavily focused on anthropology, archaeology, and sociology. But if I could go back in time, I would actually do more of this and I'd dive more into it as I feel it would round me out better as a person. So if you find your child drawn to statistical numbers, just encourage them to look more into it. I don't have a really good resource on statistics, teaching statistics to children, but I'm sure if you Google that, you can probably find something your kid would love. So kids, while they're, while they're in school, they'll naturally be drawn to specific, specific topics and classes. For me, it was always the science and technology type stuff. And back in the 80s and 90s, we really didn't have this strong STEM focus like we do today. There were some options out there, though. My mom was a teacher, and she could recognize our interests. And so I remember basically every summer we were signed up for some sort of science or technology summer camp, or she'd constantly be on the lookout for various robotics or sciency type stuff at garage sales, I mean, just things like that. There's one day that she brought home, as a i think it was like a shoebox. maybe it was a little bit bigger and it was full of tiny motors these motors were anything from about thumb size up to the about i don't know, fist size and she found it at this garage sale it was just a few bucks and i thought it was the coolest thing ever she knew it, i'd love it so she brought it home bought it and brought it home later a couple days later talking to a family friend who happened to be over in that box of motors was sitting there and the family friend just kind of laughed at it and thought it was the stupidest thing she'd ever purchased she's like why would she even buy that i I don't believe i said anything because i absolutely loved it and at least that entire summer i played with those motors for hours and hours so what if you don't really know what your kids' favorite classes are. What if they're not into robotics and science and technology? Because, generally speaking, those on the spectrum fixate on one aspect. Mine was the science and technology. Others might be the art and language type things. There are actually some methods, based on my experience, that you can notice... A little left of normality in a kid. One of those methods is to just watch how they play. As a child, playtime generally consisted of two different constructs, if you will. One was where there were other kids to play with, and one was where there were not others to play with. So when I was with other kids... I would generally flock towards the group of kids that play was rather unorganized. We didn't get together to play baseball or kickball or organize a football tournament or anything like that. It was more of the run around and just do whatever we happen to feel like doing at the moment. As a lot of exploring climbing on things, maybe a little jumping off of things, and overall just being rough-and-tumble boys. And if there were a lot of kids around, we might organize loosely a game of cops and robbers or capture the flag. I don't remember those lasting that long because most of the time people would just get bored. And we'd just we'd go find something else to do, and it was just finding something to do that just kind of came naturally. So as the left of normal kid in the group, I was very happy to be involved and included. And I generally just ran amok making a lot of random noises. Screeching like an eagle and barking like a dog or anything to just express whatever was inside of me at the time that didn't come out in words. It just came out in hoots and hollers. Now, granted, I was 7 to 10 years old at this time, and it was actually hilarious to the other kids, and so I figured if I shrieked and I got a laugh, then I was doing something right. So, I just continued with those random noises. Now, even as an adult, I every now and then find this weird urge to just shriek or scream or yelp. I don't know where that urge comes from, and naturally i can control myself a little bit better so i generally keep those shrieks to a minimum often i only perform them while driving alone with my really crappy techno music turned way high so nobody passing by can happen to hear me yelp or scream playing without other kids when there weren't other children to play with on my own it wasn't this it this wasn't actually a very common occurrence i have three brothers uh two of whom are quite close to me in age so generally there's somebody to hang out with but sometimes i was alone and when i this did happen i remember i kind of just wandered around and i looked at things and i'd poke at sticks and turn over rocks maybe talk or sing to myself and I believe I was just enjoying a lack of exterior stimulation or any stimulation that was out there was controlled and I was able to filter it so when I needed more I could provide more and I didn't have to worry about weird stimuli that didn't jive with my feelings at the time. So for those parents who may not yet know if their child is left of normal or not, watch how they play. Sudden outbursts that really have no provocation or a complete comfort of not having anyone around and being totally happy in silence or controlled, uh, uh, self-implied. for lack of better wording, uh, stimulus and noises. They could be indicators of a left of normal child. Now, growing up, I remember I did play organized sports. They weren't organized with the group of boys in the backyard type thing as much as they were uh, just sports that were leagues that we signed up for. And, And often it was because my older brother, Tim, was playing that particular sport. There's only a year and a half between us, and we were often in the same league, although not on the same team. So we'd be in the Boulder Arrowhead Baseball League, but he'd be a year or two ahead of me on, as far as teams go. But this was incredibly helpful in my socialization, as I would never have the guts to attend like a summer camp without knowing someone there. And even if I had to break off into a group on, on my own, I knew my older brother was nearby and that just alleviated these nerves that would have turned me into far more of a recluse than I am now. With my older brother and his interests, I too was interested in the same thing. So he would play baseball, so I was uh, like automatically interested in baseball and he liked to collect baseball cards and so i as well was interested in collecting baseball cards and i'm not entirely sure how other people view a card collection for me that statistical aspect of the cards themselves was what appealed to me that's what drew me drew me in Okay, so for those of you who don't know, a sports card kind of works like this. At least it did back in the 90s. There were, I don't know what they're actually called. Maybe they're called like printing companies or card companies. So back in the 1990s and before that and probably after as well, there were various card companies. There was Donruss, Topps, Upper Deck, Fleer... And probably a couple of others that I can't remember. These companies, they would print a picture of a ball player on the card. On the front was usually their name, their position, and the team that they played for. And then on the back of the card was a lot of their stats for like the previous 8 or 10 years. Sometimes a little blurb about their history and the sport or whatever. And each card had a number on it. So every printing company would print a set of cards each year. I don't know how many there were. Maybe like four or five hundred cards for the so say the nineteen ninety two tops baseball cards. Uh, you could buy this complete set of four or five hundred cards, or you could buy them in smaller packs of. I think they were around twenty or twenty five cards. These smaller packs just had random cards in them. The complete set obviously had all one through five hundred in numerical order. As children, we could not afford the complete sets, so we'd buy a pack of cards here and there, and then we'd get them home and we'd open the pack. So we'd sorted sorted them out to see if we had any good cards, and sometimes we would. Generally, it was just a bunch of bunch bunch of junk. We would use our Beckett guide. It was a guidebook that showed you the value of these cards, and we'd look them up by number the guide would give you an idea of what this card was worth. Unlisted cards were usually worth like a penny or two or three cents maybe, and most of the listed cards were only worth five to maybe ten cents. And there was always one or two cards in any given set that was worth a dollar or two. Generally speaking, there was not something worth considerably more unless it had an error printed on it. So my brother and I, we would spend hours sorting through these cards. And I absolutely loved it because it put some sort of order into this collection. I would take my cards and organize them by year and by printing company. So all my 1992s would be in one box and one section would be the Don Rosses, then another section the Fleers, and then another section the Topses and so on. And so we would go through these cards, card after card after card, and we'd look them up one by one. And unlisted cards would just go back into that box in their respective order, obviously. And the low value cards, these five to ten centers, they'd go into this little kind of plastic sleeve, almost like a sandwich bag type thing. Those were three say 25 cents or so or 25 cents to a dollar we had a whole system set up they'd go into a hard plastic sleeve to protect them a little bit more because they're they're worth money and on the rare occasion that we got a card that was worth maybe three to ten dollars I have some even harder plastic cases now the ones that were ten dollars or more I only had a few of those because they were hard to come by I had these cases, and you actually had four screws on them. You unscrew the screws, you put the card delicately in there, and then you screw these screws back in, so nothing, nothing's ever going to damage or destroy this thing. Now, as a child, obviously, I thought 10 bucks was a lot of money, and I need to, needed to ultra-protect that card. And today, it seems rather silly to use such immense protection on a piece of paper that's only worth a handful of dollars. For me collecting cards wasn't about the player on the card not even really the baseball other than that's the only sport that I really played. I didn't care who was on the front except that those that were ranked well the good players they were actually worth a bit more. No it was about the systematic organization that they naturally fell into. So today I all my cards are packed away, except for two of them. I have two that sit in a little plastic case on a shelf above my computer desk. They're both 1973 Topps cards. One is Pete Rose, and the other is Hank Aaron. Years ago, as an adult when I bought these, many years ago, I don't even remember what I paid for them. I just liked them. I wanted a couple baseball cards. I could afford something more than the little wax pack with whatever you get. You get. And so I recently I took these out. I took a look at the Pete Rose card, card number one hundred and thirty, and I looked it up on the Beckett Guide online. It's probably worth around ten or twelve dollars. The Hank Aaron card, card number one hundred is probably worth somewhere between $25 and $40. I suppose I should probably go find a couple of those hard-sided cases with the screws in them, and so I can protect my most valuable cards that I own. We'll see if I ever get around to that. For now, I just kind of like having them sit above my computer desk, reminding me of the times where I was perfectly content to sit for hours and hours looking up cards one by one to see if they were of any value. For now, you've had a peek into the world where everything left is right. If it feels right, then it must be left. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. Join the Facebook community. Please feel free to ask questions over there anything from experiences you've had or things that you are wondering about. And remember, left of normal children need encouraged differently than your normie kids. Find their strengths and celebrate them. And of course, share this with your friends, whether they're left, normies, or right.